0: This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. One, It's Wednesday. Um, I almost said April. No, it's not April. It's July. It's July 20th. I don't know why I would say April because it's getting hot here in LA finally and it's certainly not April. Uh, welcome. Um, I okay, I admit it. I said, Oh, I'm gonna be doing lots more podcasts this summer. It's been a month since my last podcast. I mean, like to the day basically, uh, pretty sure. Uh, But uh, I have, I have a note written from my mom and dad. Uh, No, just kidding. Uh, I went to Scotland. I went, actually, I went to a wedding, and then I went to Scotland, and then I came back. And, um, and I've been working on writing stuff and being off of social media and all of that. So um, those aren't just excuses and reasons, whatever. But, you know, it, this is this is just the pace of my life there's just rhythm here and it is what it is uh, part of it is that really being off social media I have a lot less to say to the world I just do it's just a natural outcome so I just I wanted to um, catch you up a little bit about like how that all went down so on my birthday June 14th or my birthday June 15th but at midnight June 14th I shut down social media that means I took the Twitter and the Facebook thing off my uh, phone and as you know, I did a show after that, and um, you know, can promote because I have Hootsuite. You know, I don't have to look at a feed; I can just you know make the machine do the thing for me. Um, and it was funny though. The thing that I recognized that first week without it was that um there was just an urge to keep picking up my phone and looking at it, just because that's what we do all day long. And like I'm a monkey brain, so I have my monkey brain, and it's like, oh, pick up, pick up, pick up. And so I knew I couldn't look at Twitter, and I knew I couldn't really, I didn't want to look at Twitter um, or Facebook. Um, so I, because I was, um, I wasn't, I was going to Scotland. Um, I just kept checking the weather of Scotland. That became my thing to do. And then I have that little because I have an Apple phone. I have the little Apple news feed, and so I would like check in with the Apple news feed too a couple times a day. So the weather and the news feed were my Kind of answers to needing to look at things that would refresh, you know, like a timeline, kind of. Uh, But it was funny just watching myself do that. Um, And then there were like some days where that just wasn't doing it enough, and I knew I couldn't do Twitter, and I knew I couldn't do anything else. And then I would think, well, like, oh, I'll do I'll do a crossword puzzle because I love crossword puzzle. I'm like, yeah, it's just not the same. The crossword puzzle, you know, or play solitaire. "Eh, It's just not it, you know, and. Um, it was just my mind, my dopamine addicted mind, um, detoxing, like pure detox. Like, um, I should have probably been going to a meeting also every day because I think we do need meetings for this stuff. Maybe I will start it. What will it be called? TA? Technology Anonymous? I don't know. Uh, so, but it is good. It is good because, um... I I really have seen all the reasons why I've been on social media all these years, A, one of which is my pure codependence, my need to be held up by the world around me. Um, and therefore, it makes it oh so dangerous to be on social media because I need to be held up by the world around me. So I'm learning to not be held up by the world around me. Um, and it's... It's, it's interesting. It is interesting to think about, like, I would go through my day and actually imagine, like, before I would post something, especially if it was going to be like an opinion about something or a stance, I would like imagine the faces of unknown thousands of followers of mine and how they would react. That's really, really traumatic for a codependent person. (laughs) That is that is a form of prison hell. It is. It is. And and it was one I self-created. So for all my codependent friends out there, oh, and you know who you are. Uh try it. Really? Just try it. Get off the social media. It's incredible. It's like reading uh, Melody Beatty's Codependent No More. It's it's that powerful. You all know what I'm talking about. Um And so here's the thing. Uh, My original love, my original art form in high school was photography. I um, consider myself a photographer first. I don't do it professionally at all. I never really pursued it. Um, More things that I just put away in the basement in my 20s, you know, in order to focus on my husband, Andrew, and piles of cocaine. And um, so I decided a compromise with the social media was I would join Instagram and, of course, I got so much shit about that from friends. Well, it's still social media. But here's the thing about Instagram. I just put pictures up, and very few of them are selfies. I'm not – and I I only follow people who don't do selfies. I'm not interested in looking in people's faces and where they're at and what celebrities they're hanging out with because that's some of the hell of social media that I hate is it creates – even if you are, like, the most satisfied person with your life, it creates envy or feelings of lack of self-worth on some level when you see all that shit going by – it's fucking junior high is what it is. And so I try not to put selfies up unless it's you know something kind of nice. and I try and I avoid people who put selfies up. So I, I follow people that make really beautiful pictures. Um, my friend Paul Myers makes beautiful pictures. He's Paul Myers Pull my ears on uh, both Instagram and Twitter as you know him. He's been a guest here before. and he, beautiful pictures. So I follow people make beautiful pictures and I've been putting pictures up. Um, and I've been like going back in my library and putting pictures up too, like kind of finding some of my favorites and putting them up there because it's like a little gallery. I kind of like that. And it's been great. It's absolutely been great. And then one day I discovered the notifications button, which is, that's the social media part of it. That's where you find out who's liking what, who's commenting, all that kind of stuff. And, I noticed it was like lit up on the thing. I'm like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's that thing. Oh, great. Okay, that's the fucking social media part. Okay, well, I'll try to ignore that. Try to ignore that. And then, you know, it fills up with a bunch of notifications. Then you push on it to make them clear out of the way. And then I noticed someone in the notifications. Um, and I was doing really well. It was like week three off of social media. And then I noticed that one of the notifications was that Bobcat Goldthwaite was now following me on Instagram. Instantly. Instantly. I got a fucking ego boost from it. I got adrenaline hit. I got a sense of feeling special. Oh my God, Bobcat's following me. I mean, never mind that, you know, he and I were in uh, apartment two C pilot with my dad and HBO and you know that I I kind I don't really know him now, but he's one of those people that, you know, I could call up and he would have a conversation with me. But because he's a celebrity and he's a comedian, I felt fucking special because he was following me. And I just immediately fucking hated myself after that. Oh, really? After three weeks of clearing my mind. So, but here's the great news. The great news is that with all of the horror that has gone on in this country in the last two weeks, let alone 200 years, I mean – um. But especially the last two weeks. Um, One of the nice things about not being on social media is that I don't have to have an opinion in 15 seconds of an event happening in the world. I don't have to figure out my position, my stance. I can let myself emotionally go through the experience. I can turn on the TV. I can turn off. I can read a newspaper about it. I can read a magazine article about it. I'm not in the echo chamber. I don't have 15,000 opinions coming at me from right, left, center, up, down, whatever. Um, I can choose how much I want to engage this event and I can decide or not decide what I feel about it. I can let my feelings change about it. I can decide to not have feelings about it for two more weeks or what. I can let it stew. I can have a bigger perspective. It's been really, really healthy for me. I've found myself again. I found where my center is, how I look at the world. I'm not just wavering in the wind of the echo chamber. And because of that, I've been able to think big thoughts again, have big vision, be able to, um, as Logan just said a minute ago, stand above the kind of three-dimensional map of life and just see the whole picture and it's lovely and so i'm really excited because i have a guest this week and this came out of this perspective um and uh i'm interested in once again at least for now i don't know how long it's going to last who knows about these things but i'm reconnecting to Why I started this podcast in the first place, why it's called waking from the American dream. What is the bigger perspective about our culture and our society. I feel like when I joined social media, and I knew I was doing this as I was joining it, that I was going to get stuck in the trenches, and that I was going to have to pick sides and take positions and defend myself and create arguments and all that kind of stuff, which is good stuff. I mean, it's good for people to do that. It's good to have an opinion. It's good to be in the thick of it and be in all the muck of it. But that's not where I naturally live. I naturally live in the big picture place. Um, Is that a part of my heritage, my legacy, my DNA, how I was raised? I don't know, probably, definitely part of it. Um, But it's where I live. And so today I'm excited because I have a guest who also lives in that place. I well, I can't think of a more apt guest for Waking from the American Dream. Uh, the title that I came up with for this podcast, which was actually supposed to be a documentary eight years ago, uh, when I originally sat down with um, some thinkers in this field, uh, Don Beck being one of them. So I'm excited about my guest today. Um, This is a man who sees the things that kind of underline all that this podcast holds in it, you know, an evolution of the American psyche to create life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for generations to come. Um, As most of you, I'm sure, uh, this political season has left me (laughs) disgusted, disappointed, disenchanted, And uh, some moments just downright terrified. Um, Not only are the right and left more polarized than ever, but both the right and the left, within them, their schisms, are more on display this year, and especially during the primary season, than I've ever seen, I think, in my entire life. Um, So uh, there's something going on in the air, and, and, and having spent some time away from social media... I'm kind of getting a bigger perspective on this and and thinking about maybe dedicating um, more than at least two or three podcasts to this topic uh, in the months to come. And who, who knows? I've got some things brewing inside of my head. Um, I've often described myself as someone who holds the tension of the opposites. Of course, that is a Jungian term about attempting to hold both the shadow and light elements of the psyche in an equal way. And when I got trained as a coach through Coach's Training Institute, uh, a couple years after I got my master's in Jungian psychology, I learned about an even broader approach, what they call perspective work. And this is an ability to look at one's current perspective toward a situation in your life, and then maybe uh, examine the opposite perspective, and then generate even more perspectives outside of those two polarities to give yourself actually a true choice in your life. During this time, I began to study Ken Wilber's integral philosophy, which I've talked a little bit about here on the podcast and talked to you about, and was turned on to um, Don Beck's Spiral Dynamics, which really examines the underlining value system that makes up different parts of our culture, and there's a developmental sequence of these value set points throughout human history. Um, in that system, you know, the most p- pertinent... Kind of set points that we talk about are uh, traditional values, modern, postmodern, and something just beginning to emerge, which we call integral. And in the integral worldview, one is able to see um, not only your own perspective, but all other perspectives. You're really able to stand in other people's shoes and see both the shadow and light of, of all perspectives. Whereas in the traditional, the modern, and the postmodern, they can't see anyone else's perspective, and thus the polarization of America. Last week, I was hanging out for about an hour on my deck here with Dahlia Lithwick. Um, She's a writer for Slate. She's uh, what I call the Supreme Court goddess. She covers the Supreme Court for Slate. Very intelligent woman, uh, fellow Thomas Jefferson Center board member. And we talked for the whole hour about how everything feels so embittered and entrenched, and that even in the left... Um, you know, there's just this schism going on between political correctness and free speech issues and this thing called the regressive left that my friend Dave Rubin talks a lot about. And so we both became really energized with the idea of attempting to create a new dialogue, um, not only just for the, for all political spectrum, but especially on the left, because we both consider ourselves progressives. And, um... And so we started talking about like what it would be like to have this bigger conversation. And boom, someone's name dropped right into my head during this conversation. And that person is Steve McIntosh. And he is my guest today. Uh, Steve is um, currently works as president and co-founder of the nonprofit, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, I just wish—that's such a great name for an institute. And uh, the the institute is an integral think tank, focuses on cultural roots of America's challenges. I mean, hello, what we're talking about today. Its mission is to help create political evolution in America by working to overcome the problem of hyper-partisan polarization by evolving the political positions of both the right and the left according to their own values and strengths. I know that sounds a little Pollyannish, but I'm telling you people, this is grounded, pragmatic stuff and it's exciting. Um, Steve, uh, in addition to this work, he's an integral philosopher and um, works in developmental psychology. But in addition, uh, Steve's also uh, worked in a variety of other ways. He's um, had some successful careers, uh, practiced law, was an executive at Celestial Seasonings Tea Company, and an Olympic-class bicycle racing He's, is one of his interests. Um, welcome, Steve, again, uh, to Waking from the American Dream.
1: Thanks, Kelly. It's really a pleasure to be with you, and um, it's a lot of fun to have these conversations with
0: you. I know. I'm excited about this. But before we get into uh, political hyperpartisan partisan polarization, um, how are you feeling about the Tour de France? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm a huge cycling fan. I'm watching it, uh, you know, with, with great interest, I have to say. And, uh, you know, my my English mother would be proud of me for rooting for Chris Broome. Yes. Um, and I, I love to watch the Tour de France because it's, uh, you know, it, it's really a showcase of human character.
0: It, it, it really is. And I was disappointed. TJ uh, got left behind today on the mountain, but uh, I'm a big fan of TJ's, so... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, go TJ. (laughs) Totally. Absolutely. Uh, So welcome. So I, I thought we would start with a little bit of historical perspective about, you know, how did this polarization all, how did it get to where it is today in 2016? What are kind of the seeds in the last 40 or 50 years that were planted that got us to where we are today?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, polarization has, is in a category of problems known as wicked problems, in the <laughs> sense that, uh, you know, there's, there's no uh, single cause, whole uh, concert of causes, which have sort of been concentrated to create it, and there's no obvious solution. Uh, as I argue, um, political polarization is primarily a cultural problem, with mm. a cultural solution, mean, which means that to really overcome it in a per- permanent way, we need to grow out of it, right? So what does that mean? Um, the analogy that I use to kind of frame the discussion is the way that our society's notions of ideal masculinity and femininity have evolved since the 1950s. Right? Like, few will disagree that um, that that our notions of, of what it means to be a real man, you know, or or a real woman have have evolved since right. the polarized conditions of the 50s, where you know the ideal masculinity was the tough guy John Wayne and the ideal femininity was, you know, demure June Cleaver, right? So one of the ways that we can see that the um, our ideals of, of these gender roles have evolved is that what it means to be a real man now includes being sensitive and emotional and and um, including qualities that were once, you know, reserved for the feminine side. Likewise, our ideals of, of womanhood, if you will, include being strong and independent and, and ideals that in the fifties were only associated with the masculine side. And so you know, it, the, the, the polarity of masculine and feminine has evolved, and we've certainly come to appreciate many different stations on the gender continuum, if you will. In other words, there's nothing wrong with, with androgyny, for example. Right. But androgyny, you know, when we apply this to the analogy of, of political polarization, um, androgyny eliminates the procreative tension. Mm-hmm. You know, it is of much of the juice that's found, you know, in the, in the natural polarity of masculine and feminine, you know, is eliminated in that. It's kind of a, a centrist compromise, if you will. And in the same way that centrist compromises, you know, squeeze out the juice in gender relations, centrist compromises have found to be uh, not very effective in politics, at least for the last 50 years. So what I'm recommending and suggesting in, in the work of the Institute for Cultural Evolution is to envision you know a more evolved left that incorporates some of the strengths of the right while still being, you know, identifiable as left and not some mushy centrist middle. And likewise, you know, the the idea that there'll always be some version of the right. I mean, maybe we won't be calling it the right anymore, but but there'll always be some version of this polarity. Right. Because the polarity in politics is permanent in the sense that it may grow and change, but it's indestructible because it continues to reappear in new guise as um, you know our democracy um, you know changes and evolves.
0: And and it and it. I mean, it even feels like you know. I mean, the way you talk about these two polarities, you know. I mean, what we're talking about is on the right a more traditional. Uh, sense set of values you know uh, law and order and respect for heritage and and religion and things like that um you know and conservative in the sense of like conserving the past and then there's this left which is more progressive and more you know wanting to leap forward and create actual progress and you know when i think about it the the archetypes of the the senex and the puer you know those are two natural human archetypes that live within us that no matter what you know a part of us wants to slow things down and stagnate and keep things the same and another part of us just wants to keep changing evolving so these are very human human ways of being in the world so it's not surprising that human societies deal with these polarities and that they're they're always going to be here for sure
1: yeah it seems as though both values and things that create value naturally cohere in in polar sets right so that there's there's two you know taking a philosophical view of, of this polarity phenomenon there are are positive negative polarities you know like prosperity and poverty you know but I think that eventually we can overcome poverty, you know, and, and prosperity is something that the, the,
0: the, the, the everyone positive and negative polarity of <laughs> yeah.
1: prosperity and poverty <laughs> is a problem to be solved.
0: Right, right, right. But there are other
1: kinds of polarities that are positive-positive, and those can't be solved as problems. They're more systems to be managed. Mm. And that's where both ends of the polarity are creating value, right? So, for example, freedom and order or mercy and justice or competition and cooperation right these are, are kinds of of value creating fields where ideally the, the most value creation by one can happen when it's kind of moderated by the other mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're in a permanently indestructible set so seeing how i mean when we look at politics if you're on the left you sort of see the, a positive-negative polarity, like those on the right are, you know, crypto-fascists that must be crushed, right? <laughs> Likewise, uh, you know, the opposite is, is true if you're on the right. But the, the, the evolutionary potential that's in front of us culturally to, to grow our way out of our dysfunctional politics, I think, is found in understanding that there's a positive-positive version of the left-right polarity, mm-hmm. and that, um, and that the, the, the interdependence of these two sides at their, at their best is, um, you know, one can encourage the other if, it, if it's able to see. In other words, we want, if we're on the left and we want the right to evolve and get better and more moral and more inclusive, one of the best ways we can do that is by making common cause with the parts of the, of the right that are actually standing for values that we share. Right. So, um, you know, there's there's a there's a method uh, in this, and, and it involves. We're not trying to change people's values by by growing out of polarization. We're trying to <clears throat> increase the scope of what they're able to value, broaden their horizon of values, and that's one of the ways that we can um, we can measure the evolution of consciousness itself.
0: So, so before we d- dig too much into the value systems, though. Um I just I, I, I loved um, you've got you've got a bunch of writing that you, you write about this stuff. And I, I just I love it all because it really walks you through it. And and what I found fascinating, what really helped me was to see that, you know, there was this there was this kind of time in American history, which I'm. I'm guessing it's what they talk about on the right when they say "Make America Great Again," which is the 1950s when there was kind of this liberal centrism, or you know, neoliberal you know values, and there was this, there was cooperation and there was competition and there was this bipartisan thing and people came together and you know, the Republican uh, president, you know, Ike, you know, warned us of the military com- industrial yeah, complex. A long time ago, I it? mean, <laughs> yes, it's amazing to me that, you know, when I see, when I hear that and that there was this time when kind of we could all talk to each other and guys could smoke cigars in back rooms and, you know, it wasn't a perfect world, but there was, there was conversation going on and these people, um, you know, socialized together and they, they, they made, they made deals and, and they, they moved legislation forward Um, and then, you know, the sixties came about and this explosion of a new set of values came into our culture. And this really, I mean, it really was a revolution and this, what you're calling and what the, what many people in the integral world call this postmodern value system, uh, came exploding into the world and, and kind of took the traditionalists and the modernists who are kind of the capitalists, I guess you could say, um and you know wanted to just burn everything down <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and, that, that it was there was creative destruction
0: yeah on. and and that's kind of you know and that's kind of the reputation now that the left has projected on it and and that obama has you know when trump says things like you know i don't know what's going on with obama you know and and with terrorists and not backing cops and stuff you know it's this thing like you know, because because some Americans want to criticize America, they're traitors, you know, and, and that and that really wrangles the right, you know. Whereas the left is saying, well, don't we have the right to criticize our own society? And so that's kind of where this tension really started between the right and the left, if if that's the way I read it, right?
1: Yeah, I think that this is in some ways, even though it, uh, you know, from a, a narrow perspective, it looks like our democracy is in you know full blown decay uh i would say that there's a lot of optimism to be seen with the emergence of postmodernism and its disruption of the post-war liberal consensus as political scientists call it right. in other words that is even though the youth movement of the 60s you know sort of died out by the mid 70s many of the countercultural values that were you know embraced and discovered by the baby boomers eventually became uh, assimilated by the larger society and and this this move into into these another word for them are the, are the cultural creatives, right? Yep. There have been many different framings of this of this system of values, but one of the breakthroughs of the last 20 years is we really begin to see it as a discrete worldview that's separate from mm. mainstream modernity, not just by as a matter of opinion, but as a matter of self identity and as a matter of what's defined as beautiful, true, and good within that values frame. Now the fact that this emerged sort of beyond pushing off against the mainstream you know kind of rejecting the establishment for for you know many legitimate reasons this um this created a, a differentiation in the culture in other words there was a there was once you know, in the in the Walter Cronkite era, you know, in the in the in the liberal era consensus, there was a kind of a truce between the different worldviews. Everyone held the same worldview, and and patriotism, uh, non-ironic patriotism, really was a motivator uh, to uh, you know to compromise for the greater good of the country. But as postmodernism, uh, as we're calling it, as this new countercultural worldview emerged and and it came to represent 20% of the U.S. population at this point. It was more concerned with uh, a world-centric morality more than a nationalistic morality. So that uh, you know, nationalism was questioned. Nationalism was seen to be warlike and selfish, and even kind of ethnocentric. So this move toward uh, kind of the, the notion of being a global citizen and the notion of having, um, uh, you know, moral consideration for, you know, not just every, every person in the world, but for all sentient creatures in the world, this represented authentic, and continues to represent, I think, uh, you know, a positive development overall in, in our nation's culture. But, you know, way back, even before Darwin, um, the, the famous uh, kind of British philosopher of evolution, Herbert Spencer, he defined evolution as, first, there's differentiation, and that allows for a higher level of integration. So over the last 50 years, we've seen our culture differentiate, right? And that sort of pushed not only postmodernism away from the mainstream, but the traditionalists, who used to have a kind of a more of a truce with modernity, have you know, seen that that modernism has a new enemy on the postmodern side, and that's kind of pushed social conservatives and religious folks farther away. So now we have these three major worldviews, you know, traditionalism, modernism, and postmodernism, as you mentioned in the setup, and these three worldviews are are contributing to uh, uh, almost unprecedented levels of polarization such that our democracy has become a vetocracy you know each side has a veto <laughs> yes. on the positive programs of the other and and you know this is this isn't just an inconvenient political situation it does represent political decay but i think pulling back and seeing a larger picture we can see well there's also hope because first there's this antithesis
2: mm-hmm. and
1: in the, in the course of cultural evolution that points to a coming synthesis and that's what this integral perspective represents
0: Yes, that's what gives me hope at night. (laughs) That's when I lay in my bed and think, there is a synthesis coming at some point. But then I also think about, you know, the bifurcation point and how either the system goes either into... Uh, chaos, or it reorganizes at a higher level. So I'm always like...
1: Right, right. Go. Well, you know, evolution it, it is evolution's not an upward escalator <laughs> to the good, right? right? I mean, you know, there is, there is the dark age, there is Hitler. I mean, anything can happen, and that's why yeah. we need to, you know, take it seriously and realize that it's not just automatic, that we actually have a duty to participate in mm. the positive development of our, you uh, know, our society.
0: Yeah, yeah, so so yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, most people throw out there as the solution, you know, is compromise. You know, let's meet in the mile- aisle together. Let's cross the aisles, like like it was in the fifties. You know, let's let's solve it by doing that. Let's find a happy middle ground, and you know, sw- swap things, uh, horse trading or whatever they call it. And and what I think is really interesting and fresh about what you talk about is that you see that that centrism, that middle ground. A, there really isn't any middle ground anymore, and that it really, yeah. it really doesn't help with this synthesis part. It just becomes thesis, a- antithesis, and then there's there's nothing in the middle. So, uh, what is what is it about centrism that doesn't work? And then how? And and w- what is you know what is the synthesis that w- that we're talking about?
1: Sure. Well, let me start answering that by. Um, going back to what I said at the beginning about polarization being a wicked problem, right? There's not a a, straightforward, oh, we just need to do this, and all these other approaches or proposed remedies are simply wrong. For example, bipartisan compromise is good when you can get it, but for the last 20 years, our polarization has, has been getting worse, and so those who Champion bipartisan compromise are clearly not getting the job done. Um, Mainstream pundits typically suggest one of two different strategies for polarization. One are structural strategies. So if we can have uh, primary reform. You know, redistricting reform so that we get rid of the gerrymandering. You know, we might be able to do that with the Supreme Court. You could have um, ranked choice voting. These are all structural changes, which would make a positive difference. And you know, I don't want to poo-poo those solutions because they're, I think, they're an important part of any overall solution to polarization. But the trouble with the structural solutions is they presuppose the cooperative political will that's missing in the first place. Right? Yes, so we're, totally. you know, we're not going to be able to make those changes if people are not willing to cooperate, right? Yes. So then the second type of suggested... Um, uh, remedy is is more of a process remedy. It's more of a mediation approach, where we can just get these people to go on retreat together. Or <laughs> if we, get, we can just get really skilled mediators to show them that they're all one people and that, you know, we're all just Americans. And, and you know, there, there's, there's this sort of idea that it's just a matter of, of, of talking to each other and, and appreciating each other as opposed to being, um, you know, literally separated into different camps where there's no interaction. And, and again, I, I don't want to um, downplay the importance of of a better process and, 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 and uh, more and I, congenial. i call that
0: the marriage counseling approach you know <laughs>
1: absolutely that's what it is yeah yeah well and it's based on the assumption that polarization is not a cultural problem it's more politicians behaving badly right, right? So we just get them to compromise right. for the greater good yes right but i think that ignores the fact that that you know if if uh If polarization is happening in spite of the the needs of the electorate, right, Mm -hmm. then we would call that corruption, right? But if it's happening because of the polarized situation within the culture, we call that representation, (laughs) which is the way the democracy. (laughs) We call it
0: democracy, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: No. So so again, we approach it from a cultural perspective and think that part of the reason that that um, many of pundits and political scientists don't really go to the cultural part of this, is because there's, they don't really have a theory that can understand culture. Mm. You know, that a social science can get you, you know, can, can get you some ways toward understanding culture, but values and worldviews, and indeed the evolution of consciousness itself, can really only be got at philosophically, right? Yes. And social science has physics envy, so they don't know what to do with philosophy, right? <laughs> in, in many cases.
0: Oh, that's a whole right? other I mean, conversation, they want to be hard Steve. Science,
1: right, so uh, they, they can only deal with things that can be <laughs> measured, but values can't be measured in that way. You yep. know? So so we we are trying to add, we're, we're philosophical activists that bringing integral philosophy to bear on the, you know, the p- political problems that America's facing. And so for, because this integral perspective allows us to see culture, at least we claim, we argue, more clearly uh, because it shows how culture develops and, and how it, there, there is a vertical dimension of growth, which, which you know, is normative, even though um, it's, you know, the, the later appearing stages are not absolutely better than pre, you know, early, older stages. But there's a, a way of getting at values because we can tell which way is up. Yes. Right? Yes. So we're willing to say so, unlike social science, which wants to be completely value free, which you can't be. I mean, being value free is a value, right? So anyway, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the, the the cultural approach to polarization points to the, the need for a, a, a more evolved right and a more evolved left. And, and that prescription is framed with an understanding that these two kind of need to emerge together. That the evolution of one not only gives permission for the evolution of the other, but, but puts pressure on it to evolve. And so right now, the, I come somewhat ironically, the side of the political spectrum that is uh, most poised for significant evolution culturally and, and by way of values is the right because at least they're willing to recognize they have a big problem. Hmm. I mean, not just Trump, right? That's a huge problem. But <laughs> I mean, a more a systemic problem yes. of you know the the, the uh, demographics of the United States moving um, yes. you know, away yeah. from the Republican base and millennials, you know, embracing uh, the left side of the spectrum of much more readily mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. right. Yep. Um, you know, this has given um, Republicans cause to do some soul searching, and indeed, I. Participated in my own small way with some of the meetings where that soul searching searching has gone on, and so I know that that um, you know the 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 creative destruction that Trump and and the larger demographic trends in American society are are wreaking on the right side of politics means that um, that they're uh, they're ready to uh, you know embrace a an emergent new form of politics that champions the values of liberty and heritage but does so in a way that also includes um values that are t- now kind of owned by the left.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh
1: we're helping to envision um you know a, a, a form of um the future right which uh can stand for uh you know positive immigration, uh meritocratic uh care that's that's affordable, uh you know inclusive. Uh we, we you know we we can see uh, maybe it's not the Republican Party. Maybe it's a, a fresh third party. You know, that's that's yet to be determined. It a, depends where cultural alliances are formed. But the possibility of a, of a of a new American right that is radically innovative and radically inclusive, um, I think, is, uh, is is not just wishful thinking at this point. It's starting to emerge as a real possibility.
0: Steve, what do you what do you see this Trump movement in on the right right now? And the Bernie movement on the left—are these the same people? Is this just anger at the system and disenfranchisement by the establishment for the last thirty years, starting with the Reagan era? I would, I would say, uh, you know, and and what's going on here? What's what is feeding this? Is this part of the chaos that needs to happen before the reshuffling? How do you see this Trump stuff?
1: Yeah, I, well, I mean, I see it as a as a. a you know, horrifying and disgusting. I mean, I, I, you know, while I'm sympathetic to the needs of um, working-class Americans and, and the real pressure that's been put on the middle class, both um, through globalization and technological changes, and, um, you know, the influence of uh, sort of uh, small-government libertarianism on the right, uh, you know, the, the, I, I think there's a lot of merit to understanding how the federal government inexorably can just grab more and more power for itself and that there is a danger in the government, the state, uh, becoming so large that it starts to displace uh, our freedoms. Mm. So I don't want to characterize what I'm about to say in a a kind of a black-and-white way, Mm -hmm. but I think that that the populists who are supporting Trump, I think some of them have a legitimate beef to say, well, no, I mean, the government can and should do things for us, and even though the government is ham-handed in many things that it tries to do, um, that's not an excuse to 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 say that the go- that any attempt for the government to help people have been dis- displaced by globalization or technology. That 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 can't happen. That the government has no role to play in that. And I think populists on the right uh, have said no. We actually expect the government to help, and we want that help to be, um, you know, to be configured by the sensibilities of the right. Right. But but we don't want the government to just be. You know, crushed at every turn, and and there to be no um, uh, system right. The dis- for helping the preserve di- the middle class.
0: The, the the dismantling that you know some of them want to do, like completely undo huge swaths of agencies and the tax code and all of that kind of stuff. There's
1: right. That right. yeah. Gotcha. the craving for a strong man, you know, and that, which is a deep archetype in, in I mean, even the ancient Greeks were worried about the mob
2: and mm-hmm. the tendency
1: <laughs> of, of of you know of a democracy by the mob yep. to throw up uh, uh, strong men and and leaders who were you know not suited to govern a democratic system but who you know seemed to um, allay the fears and uh, anxieties of the electorate so you know this is a problem that continues to re- reappear in every democracy and the fact that we're getting this um... strong man who's getting a lot of 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 play I mean, I, I don't think I have faith in the American people. I, I really don't think there's any chance he's going to get elected. Yeah. Um. But it's still a wake-up call for us to recognize that um, that that the government does have a role to play in helping the middle class and indeed the working class from uh, um, you, you know, b- bearing all the costs of globalization without sharing in um, yes. most of the benefits.
0: Yeah, and for me also, I mean, I've really come to feel. And empathize with the pain, you know that there's this kind of older white male stereotype of the Trump supporter, and I can only imagine what this white male is feeling in a world where, for the last thirty years, his share of the pie in every aspect of his life has gotten smaller and smaller, and the the terror of that. Um, psychologically <laughs> I I have empathy like I could f- I could understand that it's like quick let's let's turn back time or turn back the wheel or do something that you know is going to finally get my voice out there because I think they have felt um, e- literally emasculated uh, by economics and by the culture and in all sorts of ways and we haven't listened to their real pain on every level culturally and economically and it's kind of no surprise that this is where we end up,
1: right? But I think that we could take this unprincipled populism uh, and and take, learn the lessons from it by um, by using this opportunity to to uh, work toward a, a more mature form of American right wing politics. Yes, that that is able to meet the needs of the middle class um, while still doing it within the um, You know, like I said, the sensibilities of the right, you know, the values of liberty and heritage uh, can be um, brought forward in this more evolved right, but in a way that uh, keeps the, um, you know, the, the unmet needs... From resulting in mob-like populism.
0: Yeah, can you just just take two seconds to just just kind of uh, expand on when you say liberty and heritage values? What what do those look like for for those people?
1: Sure. Well, one of the ways that I get at I, in my papers, I have these charts that show. Um, uh, this uh, the list of, of what I call liberty values and a list of what I call heritage values and those are discovered using the insights of interval philosophy, but also by recognizing that this polarity of left and right is kind of fractal or self similar you know that is the polarity is not only across the spectrum of left and right but you can also see a polarity within the right there 's a left and the right of the right, right? <laughs> and, and, and so when we begin to to look at at the pol- the poles that that animate Values um, uh, on the right, you know, heritage values. You know, I could just kind of tick them off here. The first one would be promote patriotic love for America and its national interests. Another one would be um, you know, champion America's uh, religious heritage and focus on the family, right? Encourage ethnic assimilation and opportunities for upward mobility. Stand against threats to Western civilization and promote industriousness and equitable, just desserts.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. These are
1: traditional values, but they're not just social conservatives who hold them. There are many conservatives who are, um, you know, more progressive by, as you and I would define it, but still, um, you know, st- still hold uh, patriotic love for America as, as uh, you know, a very important foundation of their political identity. Yep. Then on the other side of the polarity within the right are uh, what I call liberty values, and these aren't just libertarian. They also involve fiscal conservatives. And you know, they're, they're, these are values that are held by most conservatives in general. But, but libertarianism is a, is a font of many of these values. And mm. so one is protect the sovereign rights of individuals to think and act as they choose. You know, in other words, each person ought to have a degree of sovereignty which the government can't encroach on. Right? Sounds good to me. Another one would, <laughs> would be uh, champion um, spontaneous order. That arises from free markets. You know, this is the um, libertarian uh, economist uh, Friedrich Hayek,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and he's he's pretty famous and respected. And he had a theory that um, that that economic human relations. You know, it's not just Adam Smith's invisible hand, but right. there's actually a, 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 a stability, like an internal ecosystem, where f- free trade and free markets. You know, within a, a law-governed society. Um, are able to produce spontaneous order that's that's more vital, um, that's more resilient, that's more creative, and that ultimately generates more value. So this mm-hmm. is the idea of a spontaneous order, which can't occur when you have too many regulations or too heavy-handed uh, government intervention in the economy, um, I think that's a that's an important economic insight that the, right. you know, liberty values. Uh, another one would be champion. Um, uh, limited government and private property and personal uh, privacy, right? Uh, promote entrepreneurship and economic self-sufficiency mm-hmm. and pre- protect in- individual freedom from interference by the collective. So those are some of the, the liberty values. Now, one of the ways these these lists that I have point to a method for values integration is that uh, attached to each one of these positive values complexes is a set of potential deficiencies or pathologies, right? So along with heritage values, we get sometimes, not always, but but often bigoted nativism, racism and sexism. Yeah, we're seeing oppressive, that. <laughs> oppressive authoritarianism, right? Yeah. Uh, parochial resistance to greater inclusion, you know, of, of, of minorities and, and, you know, gay people. And, and so there's a lot of, of dark stuff over there yep. that's the natural shadow or the flip side of the positive values, you mm-hmm. know, that is, is that is just as there are physics of values that show that, that values, are, things that create value are typically in a polarity. Um, when you're trying to, when you have political goals and values there's almost always a, 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 a set of, of pathologies that are the direct result or the flip side of the coin to those values. So um, over liberty values, you know, you have the potential for um, indifferent elitism and uh, selfish exploitation. Yep. It can even drift towards social Darwinism. It can be ideologically rigid. right? It can even promote a kind of anti-government anarchy. So
2: <laughs>
1: one of the ways that we can, yeah. if we're on the left, mm-hmm. that we can come to better appreciate you know that that we hold and indeed can expand our consciousness by adopting liberty values and heritage values when we can we can engage in the practice of uh, of what's called pruning away the dignities from the disasters. In other words, we can we can be patriotic without being, uh, you, you know, a nativist or authoritarian. We can love individual liberty with while still caring about the people who've been, you know, marginalized or left behind. So that that is the the process of evaluating or using these values in our overall political identity involves the work of constantly um, teasing apart, you know, well, the, the good from the bad.
0: And I would even say, just you know being a person who's on the left, you know, I look at that, that list and um, for both liberty and heritage, and there are some things that really, really resonate for me, you know, I mean, you know, championing limited government, private property and personal privacy. I mean, in some forms of my life, especially like abortion rights and, you know, internet privacy and and the FBI searches and things like that, I mean, that's really important value for me, you know, so that's like some right. place that we can come together on. And, you know, and that whole idea of promoting industrious and, and equitable just desserts, I mean, yeah, there should be meritocracy in the world, people should be earning their place in it, you know, and at the same time, we need to have space for people who need a hand a helping hand you know so it's it's not a huge stretch what you're saying here which is what i love
1: well thanks i know i vote like you i'm on the left i vote for democrats but as an integralist um i kind of have two sides you know i just like modernity itself has is, is you know from the beginning from the french revolution it's been divided between liberals and conservatives you know within the the modernist worldview and i think as this integral worldview that you and I are attracted to, as that emerges, they'll naturally be a, an integral right and an integral left, although, you know, the integral right might not be recognizable as anything that we would identify as right-wing <laughs> today. Yes. But it will fully incorporate liberty values and heritage values in a way that postmodernism can't. You know, right. Because postmodernism is the antithesis. It's pushing off against patriotism and nationalism for, for understandable and, and good reasons mm-hmm. but we you know the antithesis by itself uh, is unstable and um, you know as Don Beck says green dissolves blue you know or, or this these heritage values are, are severely um, you know degraded by the the liberation values of the progressives and while both value the tension between you know the old and the new is is expected and, and natural um, the the, the in order to preserve the heritage values that we're going to need is our foundation. You know, we, we, I like to think of these stages of development or these value complexes as like an ecosystem, right? So mm-hmm. to get rid of all the plankton, the whales die, right? Yes. If you get rid of all the heritage values, our society's going to collapse because these are achievements. You know, <laughs> the way evolution works is, yeah. that, is that each new emergent stage builds on and uses, it takes up and uses the achievements of the previous stage. You can see it in our own bodies, Right. And so if we're going to have an evolutionarily stable society, then we need to transcend and include these stages and not just, you know, wipe them out or think we can, um, you know, get by long without these lower levels of the ecosystem or well, these earlier appearing stages.
0: And the, and the way I always think about that is like, you know, part of the heritage values that are important um, and liberty, too, but just this sense of law and order, you know, that there is an agreed upon definition of you know what we can and cannot do in a civil society that's a really important thing and without that we're screwed and if that we're not built on a foundation of that you know of course there's always in the discussion is agreeing on what is right and wrong and what we can and cannot do but but the, you know i mean i always think about red light green light it's like you know without red light green light <laughs> We ain't going anywhere.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Well, and you know, I mentioned the heritage values, but those political uh, goals and values that I picked off. Those actually rest on a uh, even a more fundamental level of traditional values, which includes, you know, honesty, decency, mm. respect for rightful authority. Mm. Without those values, mm-hmm. modernity would collapse back into uh, corruption and, and lawlessness. I mean, we saw it in, in Russia in 1990 yep. with the fall of communism. Uh, there was an assumption that Russia like, was poised for major economic growth of capitalism, like Germany and Japan after World War II, and you know, major investment ensued in Russia. But the traditional stage, which was once occupied by the Eastern Orthodox Church, had been fairly wiped out, you know, mm. by communism. Right. And, and communism had sort of replaced it as its own kind of traditional, you know, conformist stage. So when that was swept away, there weren't these structures to inculcate the values of decency, honesty, and fair play, and, you know, respect for authority, so that uh, Russia in the 1990s, horrendous levels of organized crime emerged because there weren't the cultural foundations of fair play that functional modernism and a, and a modernist economy depend on. So that's a, these great lessons in history that illustrate mm. the need to have a healthy cultural ecosystem where the achievements of previous stages are carried forward and and you know uh, adopted by later appearing stages.
0: Wow, that really does that that really does um, elucidate it, in, in a way that I've never thought about the. The whole Russia thing—it's—it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely, right. there's still—I
1: mean—that's why Putin and they're—they're very—they're mu- very kind of embracing of social conservatism and nationalism, is that there's an inherent need to kind of build up yep. these traditional values um, as a prerequisite to uh, you know more vibrant. Um, and and uh, economically successful forms of modernity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, while not, he... not that that
1: justifies Putinism, but still, <laughs> you can be sympathetic to what they're trying to do.
0: Right, 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 while he lines his pockets. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
0: right, right, a kleptocracy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, so Steve and I talk another, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 minutes after this. So, And I thought this stuff was just so rich and dense and amazing that I wanted to split this conversation up into two parts. So that I'm leaving as the end of part one for uh, this week. And next week, we'll jump into part two, which is kind of perfect because this week is the GOP convention and next week is the Democratic Party convention. So we're talking about political polarity, What could be more amazing and obvious about that? So um, I want to thank Steve for joining me and having such a rich conversation. I really am excited about continuing this conversation with him uh, in the months and years to come. He's just got a great mind. And so we're going to wrap up today. Um, A couple of things. Uh, My website's almost ready to go, about to launch. I'm going to have a mailing list up there, which is going to become really important to me in the future for events and all sorts of things that I'm planning on doing in the future, whether it's performances, speaking or teaching. That's something I'm thinking very seriously about doing uh, online and both in person. Um, don't know what exactly what that looks like, but I want I want you to be on my mailing list. So um, check my website in about a week or two, and there should it should be all done and well and all of that. So, and also the other thing I'm playing with is possibly going with um, a network that's going to create advertising and put advertising on the show here. But I haven't gotten a lot of traction with them because I don't have a hundred thousand listeners, you know, I have I have you guys and and you're you're my you're my family. Um, so I may go to Patreon and do that kind of thing, but either way, uh, we need donations. Um, you know, we it's part of the work I do in the world. And uh, if you like the content we have here, you like what we do, how we frame the conversation, what we go into, Um, do we, um, you know, explode your head some days or fill your heart? Those are things I love doing both of those things. Um, if we do, um, Feel free right now to come to my website, which is st- my old website, which is still up, uh, and and come to the "Waking from the American Dream" page and hit the donate button, and it'll send you off to PayPal. Uh, we appreciate it, any little bit, uh, any anything you can give, of course, um, is is appreciated, and lets us know that that we're that we're on the right track and that um, that we're you know. We're, we're part of the community here. So um, that's it for this week. And um, everyone be safe and uh, get off of social media. That's I'm, I'm not chiding you. I'm not being like a mom. But I'm just saying it's like um, it's like a magical garden that you see. And you've like been walking by it for years. And you're like, I need to go into that garden one day. I see that little opening over there. I just need to do it. It's what it's like. Because when you go in it, it's like a whole different world. I really, really love it. I hope you can join me here. All right, we will uh, see you next week. Logan and I both thank you, and thank you, Logan, for being here. And uh, you guys have a great one. Bye. I've paid my dues, time
3: after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime and bad mistakes to you